Good morning. My name's Kevin Maurice, and I'm the youth pastor here at Grace. And today, we're going to continue our discussion of spiritual perspective in order to better understand these two realms in which we live. Uh, we've been in this uh, teaching series for the past few weeks, and, and it's not just a series, it's a paradigm shift for us as a church, how we think and, and pray through and, and see the spiritual realm. And I want us to remember that we are in a fight. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're in a spiritual fight, and the enemy has a strategy. Last week, we looked at at how the enemy attacks us, and, and we learned the progression of temptation. My hope for us today is that we'll understand the doorways, the avenues through which temptation comes, what the three primary temptations are, and then knowing them, how we can guard against them, how we can fight. And so we'll start today in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, because this passage clearly illustrates for us three pathways to temptation. The Bible says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. There are a multitude of sins, but three temptations, three doorways through which the enemy will try to gain access into our lives to tempt us towards disobedience. And these aren't new. These aren't his 21st century tactics. The enemy doesn't just try this here today. The strategy, it goes all the way back to the garden, all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Satan, he, he approaches Eve in the garden and he calls into question God's word. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable. So Eve, she responds that she and Adam, they enjoy great freedom in the garden. They're allowed to eat from any of the trees except for one, that one over there. Knowledge of good and evil, God said no, and if we eat from it, we'll die. And Satan, the deceiver, he lies. He he says, no, you won't. There's no consequence for this and What's more, you'll become like God. And in Genesis 3, verse 6, you can see how that deception leads to disobedience. And I want you to keep an eye out for the three temptations that are present here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Do you see the three temptations? The fruit of the tree, it's good for food, lust of the flesh. It was pleasing to the eye, lust of the eyes. It's also desirable for gaining wisdom. There's pride in there. All three of these doorways from 1 John chapter 2, they are there at the very beginning, at the core, at the heart of the fall of man. Now, remember, temptation itself is not sin. Disobedience doesn't take place here until Adam and Eve take those fateful bites. But these three 
temptations are doorways to that sin. And they've been around for a long, long time. And so it's important for us to understand what they are. There's another key instance in Scripture where all three of these temptations are present. It's how the enemy tempts Jesus himself. And the fact that it's the enemy's strategy from the start and with the Son of God should tell us something. And so let's study these three doorways today. Let's look at these three temptations and identify them. And, and you'll find them clearly in Luke chapter 4. And so if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles there, and, and you can read along with me. And as we identify these three, make a note, think about it. Which one is most prominent in your life? Which one of these does the enemy try to lure you with most often? Which doorway for you is, is most vulnerable? Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. If you're the Son of God, turn rocks into bread. That's temptation number one. Hey, feed yourself. You're hungry. You have the power. Satan wants Jesus to give in to lust of the flesh. A quick review, when it comes to lust, we, we typically associate it with some sort of sexual sin. And that's certainly one of the ways it's most evident. But in a biblical sense, lust is simply any desire that's become distorted and warped and taken to this unhealthy degree. And so the de desire here, even the need for something, can be a fine thing. God gives us the capacity for certain desires. We feel hungry because the body needs food. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is hungry. But this healthy desire for food, it's a temptation here because Satan is trying to turn that desire into lust. And when Satan tempts Jesus with bread, listen, there's nothing wrong with bread. Bread is delicious. I love bread. The No-carb diets, we'll talk about that next week. That's evil, okay? <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the desire to eat. But... It was not God's will for Jesus to eat at that time. Jesus is fasting. He's preparing. He's trusting the Father to meet all of his physical needs. And the enemy is trying to speak to Jesus' hunger, and he tempts Jesus to satisfy his appetite apart from God's plan. And so the doorway of the flesh, this temptation, it's to misuse or overemphasize our desires. Lust of the flesh, in three words, it's a fixation on what I need, what I need, or at least what I think I need. And the desires that are turned to temptation in this realm, they're generally coming from a very inward place. And, and that's why so often lust of the flesh, it deals with sins of pleasure. Because pleasure itself is not an evil thing. God created pleasure. In our first week together, Pastor Matt assigned some homework. He recommended picking up a copy of the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. 
It's fiction. It's a book uh, written as a series of letters from an elder demon writing to his nephew, kind of best practices for tempting a human soul. And one of my favorite lines is from a demon acknowledging this, that God, he made all the pleasures. And all of our research so far has not enabled us to produce even one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures, which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. That is how we're tempted, to satisfy ourselves, to find pleasure apart from God's will and plan. And so the lust of the flesh, it's generally the prioritization of of good things, fine things, the gifts of God, but over God himself. And so it's significant that the first temptation against Jesus is not to do something immoral. It's to pursue something good, something even necessary that just isn't in God's plan at that time. That's the strategy of lust of the flesh. Take a desire, food, sleep, sex, comfort, make it so important that it drives all of your decision-making, every choice, I need this. I need it more than anything else, so I'm going to give up everything to chase after it. That's opening the door wide for lust of the flesh. I also think this is the first temptation because it's one of the easiest. Satan is nothing if not brutally efficient, and if he can trap most of us with with this, why do more? Because just think through some of the sins that are attached to this temptation. Food, part of God's plan for the human body. But can it be mistreated? Absolutely. You're having a bad day? Use food to soothe those feelings. Rather than eating to satisfy hunger, you eat to satisfy emotion. And and so a need becomes a, a need. How about sex? God's plan? Sex within the context and the realm of marriage. And so how are we tempted? Well, well, I can't wait. It's not fair for God to expect this from me. He's withholding this from me. And so I'll, I'll make my own plan. Pornography, it operates in the same way. I'm not satisfied currently, and so I'll find satisfaction on my own terms. When God hasn't given something to you, even a, a perceived need, at the moment that you want it, or, and and this might be tough to hear, if it's not in his plan to give it to you, the temptation will be, go get it for yourself. That is lust of the flesh. That's our first temptation. The second temptation, the devil leads Jesus up to a high place, and he shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Temptation number two, lust of the eyes. Satan shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, ostensibly all of the things he would want. And he tells him, everything you see, the whole world belongs to me. 
well, it's been given to me, semantics, but, but don't you want it? Jesus isn't ignorant here. He, he already knows to whom those kingdoms belong. They're God's. They're his. But Satan is offering all of those kingdoms without the cross. From the moment mankind fell from the garden, God knew how he would redeem us. And God chooses to exalt his son and to give him every kingdom through his death and resurrection. That is God's plan. The enemy's temptation is you can have that crown without the cross. Satan says, worship me and you can have all of it without the pain. Because who wouldn't want an easier way? This doorway, lust of the eyes, in three words, it's focusing so much on what I want. What I want. And there's a lot of overlap between flesh and eyes. They're so closely aligned. And I think the biggest difference is focusing not on, on need desires, that's flesh, but on wants. So simply put, lust of the eyes is the desire to possess or or have the things that we see, the things that appeal to us. So the covetousness for money or possessions, sometimes it's the desire for another life, somebody else's life, what they have. And parents, don't you see this with your children? They were perfectly content one moment with their toy or stuffed animal. They're playing quietly. It's quiet. It's like paradise. You can hear birds chirping. But then that other little boy or girl walks into the room, and they've got that new toy. They've got it. And your child's eyes go immediately to it. They're fixated on it. They want to have that. All they can talk about, all they see now is it, and paradise is destroyed. And there's nothing like watching a toddler fight, little gladiators locked in battle over an $8 Elmo. It's lust of the eyes. It starts early. For those of us who are grown-ups, our eyes usually crave something more. And so this doorway leads to greed or envy, the want of money or a certain lifestyle. And so you see it when people spend what they don't have chasing after the image of, of what they do, and it leads to crippling debt. I want this stuff or I want that kind of vacation it's outside of what God has currently provided for me, but I want it. The lust of the eyes stems from a lack of trust in God's provision. And, and Satan tries it with Jesus, and he'll try the same thing with you. And so the temptation might be to take a shortcut to get to the things you want or, or the things that you think you're entitled to. It's the temptation to... Sacrifice integrity or your family to get to that next level in your career. And, and your wife tells you you're working too much and, and the family is suffering and the kids, they want to see their dad. And, and you know that, but at the same time, you feel like you're so close to that next promotion to getting to the good things in life. And you say, once I get to that level, once we're at that salary, once we've saved up that amount, then... I'll be around more. Then I'll give more. I'll serve more. We can start going to the church small group again. We'll start tithing. But right now, 
I have to short my family or my church just a little bit, but, but I can see the goal. I can see the end. I can see what I want. Be careful. It could all be a mirage. The enemy may have captivated your gaze and is, is just leading you along by what you see. Social media, Instagram, it's a marketplace for lust of the eyes. I want that type of car, vacation, that body, that lifestyle. And, and so this doorway leads to so much comparison. Because you see a friend take a phenomenal trip and, and you just went on vacation, but, but now yours looks a little paler in comparison. Because you want the same thing. No, you don't. You want, you want a better thing. They got a new car. It's shiny. And so now yours looks a little less than. Their Christmas card, everybody's smiling and sitting straight and still, and it looks great. And, and ours, it's not even, well, we're not going to send it. <laughs> or maybe it's a type of life. I don't want to be single anymore. All my friends, they're all getting married. They're all having kids. I can't be happy like this. God's not giving me what I want. Lust of the eyes, it commonly begins in moments when we're frustrated with how life is going. And if you think that the issue is the circumstance that you're in or the person you're married to or not married to or, or the job or, or what you have or don't, and you think, if I could just get this other thing, then I'd finally be happy. Having that will fix everything. That's lust of the eyes. The flesh, the eyes, those two don't work with Jesus. And so the devil tries one more avenue for temptation. The devil leads Jesus to Jerusalem, and he has him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, did you notice what just happened here? The enemy quotes the Bible. Satan knows Scripture. Jesus twice responded with God's word as his defense. And so the enemy, he fights dirty. He says, okay, uh, have you heard this one? Because he will try whatever it takes the third temptation, the pride of life. Satan goes after Jesus like this. If you really are God's son, test him. If he really cares for you, if he truly loves you, jump off the temple because he won't let you get hurt. That is, if you're his son. For context, one chapter earlier, a couple weeks prior, Jesus is baptized, and God opens up the heavens and says, This is my son, whom I love. Jesus knows his identity, but the enemy aims to plant doubt. Lust of the flesh is what I need. Lust of the eyes is what I want. Three words for pride of life, who I am. Who I am. Pride, this is it. 
It's the central door for temptation. St. Augustine said it's the commencement, it's the beginning of all sin. And the enemy is 0 for 2 at this point, and so he throws one last punch. He tries this. Hey, it worked in the garden. He told Adam and Eve, you'll be like God. And he's trying to get Jesus to take the bait. You think you're God's son? You think he cares? Prove it. The sin of pride, it's the exaltation, it's preoccupation of self. It's all about me. Pride certainly manifests as arrogance and and boasting, self-admiration, self-centeredness. But it can also just as easily take the form of self-pity, self-condemnation, self-righteousness. Because the truth is, somebody who just complains constantly, they've got this woe-is-me personality. Somebody who cannot stop for one second to think of anyone other than themselves, they are just as prideful as the person who can't stop bragging about their achievements. Because the sin of pride, it, it turns a soul into this black hole. The gravitational pull inward toward I, me, self, it's so great, and, and the soul can't take that, and the soul just collapses in upon itself. That's the sin of pride. That's what the enemy is trying to do. The question of pride is, is who I am because what is at stake is our significance, our meaning. And so the devil wants to attack our identity. And so he'll tempt us to pride usually in one of two ways, tempting us to establish an identity apart from God or finding our identity, our significance in God, but only by proving it. Identity apart from God, that's fairly evident. What do you do for a living? How many letters do you have after your, your name? How good of a mom are you? Where'd you go to school? What do you have in life, money, career, spouse, kids? You can so easily establish an identity in any of those things, and none of them are necessarily wrong or evil. But what we need to be aware of is where we're finding our identity. Are we placing too much significance, too much pride in something or someone that we shouldn't. And if you're thinking, this is all well and good, those first two apply to me, but this one maybe not so much, my friend, my boss, my spouse, this is them. They're proud, but not me. If you don't think you're a proud person, it's a pretty good sign that you are. (laughs) And a great way to check yourself is by asking this, If that thing, whatever it is, was taken away, what would happen to my identity? If you're a star high school athlete and you tear up your knee and you can never play at the same level again, is your life over at 16 years old? If you get passed over for the promotion for the fourth, fifth, sixth time, do you still have significance in this world? If if your house isn't in the neighborhood that you wish you were in, can you still be content? Parents, I think a pride stronghold can be how good of a parent you are. You can put so much pride in that. My kid is well-behaved. They're more well-behaved. They're on the more elite team. They made varsity more quickly. They got a better SAT score. They're going to a superior college. 
there's some comparison going on for sure, lust of the eyes, but can't you hear all of the pride that's inherent there? Because what happens when your son or daughter doesn't achieve at the level that you'd hoped for? What happens if they're not the best? Or what happens when they leave? Because they will, does your life still have meaning? Listen, in this fight, the enemy doesn't need you to become an atheist or to hate God or to give up on your faith. The enemy can achieve his goals when God just sinks lower and lower and lower on your list of loves. And so he'll try to get you to establish an identity, to plant a flag in yourself, in your job, in your marriage, in your kids, anywhere but in Christ. That's why pride is such a powerful temptation, because it's so easy. There's another way that the enemy can fan the flames of pride, the one that he tries with Jesus. Find your identity in God, but prove it. The devil says, if you're God's son, he might try this with you. If you're a Christian, prove it. Sure, find your identity in Christ, but measure it. How often do you go to church? How many small groups are you in? Where are you serving? How much of the Bible do you know? Measure it by how often you do the good things and how you don't sin. So live your life under or for God, but don't don't find your identity with him. Don't experience life with him. And so you can create this prideful, self-righteous identity in Christianity and leave very little room for Christ himself. That's pride of life. Three doorways to temptation. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Which one is it for you? Which one stands out a little more? Which doorway is a little more open in your soul? Humans, Christians or not, we've always been lured by these three temptations. And Satan doesn't change his methods because he doesn't have to. He continues to be successful with these. And so he'll tempt us with lust of the flesh, the things that we think we need. And he'll tempt us with lust of the eyes, our our desire for more or newer or better. And he'll tempt us to pride, to put our soul, our identity into created things rather than in our creator. And so how do we protect these doorways into our soul? How do we guard against temptation and against sin? Here's how you fight. Here's how you fight. First, retrain your mind. Retrain your mind. Get into a battle mentality because the enemy's going to come after you. And and the battle, most often, it's happening right here. It's in your mind. That's the deception, the, the lie the enemy is trying to get you to think falsely, to believe a lie. Romans 12.2 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And what are the patterns of this world? 1 John 2 already told us, lust of the flesh, the eyes, pride of life. Don't conform any longer to those temptations, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to retrain our minds so that when the flesh calls out to us deceptively, hey, you need this. We need to know the truth, and we need to be able to say, nope, not right now. 
That is not God's plan at this moment. I can acknowledge this desire, but I can see right through the deception. Or when the lust of the eyes cries out, you want that? Go for it. Go get it. Retrain your mind. Trust God. Understand that ultimately nothing in this world, in this life, will ever fully satisfy. You you can always want more. Could you retrain your mind to find contentment and joy wherever God has you? And, And when that pride creeps in, and the temptation is to find your heart or your soul in this identity, could you retrain your mind? Glory to God alone. In Christ alone, that's who I am. That's where my worth truly dwells. To live differently, to fight temptation, we have got to think differently. And so how do you do that? Second defense is this, know God's word. Know God's word. It is the best way to retrain your mind. It's our greatest defense. We've been talking about a fight plan for the past few weeks. This needs to be a part of every single one of our fight plans. Knowing God's word, reading and studying scripture, writing it on our hearts. Find a psalm, find a passage that you can memorize. Make the Bible a part of your temptation drill so that when temptation comes, you can do just what Jesus did in the desert. Each time Jesus is tempted, he responds in the exact same way. It is written. God says this. So lust of the flesh, turn stones into bread. Man shall not live on bread alone. Deuteronomy 8.3. Okay, lust of the eyes. Worship Satan, gain everything that you see. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, worship God, serve him only pride of life. Prove your identity. Prove that God actually loves you. Don't put God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16. Know God's word. You might remember as a kid watching Bugs Bunny or, or some other cartoons, and the character would be tempted by something. And, and what would happen? A little demon would pop up on one shoulder, right? And a little angel would appear on the other, and they'd argue back and forth, trying to tell the character what to do. I don't necessarily think that's a silly image. Uh, The idea of a little tempter on your shoulder, pestering you, trying to deceive you, whispering, leading you towards one of these doorways, especially during an opportune time, that's very much what temptation is like. And so the question is, Do you have another voice speaking to you? Do you have God's voice as your defense? The fortification that Jesus puts up against the devil isn't this miraculous demonstration of power. He doesn't call angels down to fight the enemy. His defense is the word of God. There's power in it. It's sharper than any sword. And you and I as believers, we have a greater access to the Scriptures today, right now, than at any other point in human history. It's incredible. We have the Word of God available to us in print, on our phones, on tablets. You can listen to it in your car. You can choose which translation you like. And so what are we doing with it? Get into God's word and get God's word into you. 
do this with a group. Find other believers. Join together. Read Scripture. Arm yourselves together. If you need a reading plan, there are a lot of good ones out there. I'd recommend starting in the book of Luke. Study Jesus' life. Fix your eyes on Christ. Listen to his words. Retrain your mind in that way. Know God's word. It is our greatest weapon in this fight. During World War II, one of the Axis powers' top strongholds, it wasn't in Europe and wasn't in the Pacific. It was actually in North Africa. And commanding Germany's North African forces was a general by the name of Erwin Rommel. And Rommel is this brilliant tactician, especially with tank and troop movements in the desert. And so he earns the nickname, the Desert Fox. He even writes a book in 1937 about wartime strategy and, and how to fight in those desert conditions. Because that was Rommel's territory. And, and for years, he didn't lose any battles and he didn't give up any ground. Until a U.S. general by the name of George Patton takes control of the Allied forces in North Africa. And the battles are, are brutal, they're deadly, but by the end of 1943, Patton has driven German forces entirely out of the desert, back to Europe. So how did Patton do it? Was he a better general, better tactician than Rommel? Was he a better motivator? Were the men better trained or the allies were more equipped? No. One of Patton's aides reported that one day, while watching his forces defeat Rommel's, General Patton remarked, Rommel, you magnificent fool. I read your book. I read your book. Patton has the upper hand because he read the enemy's book. He knew how the enemy would think and move. And in the inhospitable desert, with an enemy who knew the terrain better, that advantage was crucial. Because if you understand your opponent's strategy, you know how to fight back. We are in a fight. Make no mistake about that. But we have an advantage too. Because we know the enemy's strategy. We've talked about the steps of temptation. We've talked about opportune times. And we've studied the varieties, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. What the enemy's going to try to lure us with. We've read the book. And listen, it's not the enemy's, it's ours. God, in his wisdom, he shows us the enemy's strategy by placing it in his word. So we are well equipped in this fight to retrain our mind to know God's word. That's how we fight. I'm going to pray for us, and, and then we're going to sing one last song together this morning as a reminder that We've already been delivered from sin and death. We've already won the war. And we can win in our fight against temptation because God is with us every step of the way. He knows what it's like to be tempted, and he'll give us the strength not only to stand but to fight and to be victorious in that fight. Please join me in prayer. God, thank you for who you are. God, most of all, thank you for your son. Father, we know that temptation will come. We know that we have an enemy, and, and that enemy 
knows us and even has a strategy for us. So God, we pray for strength to stand and and to fight against it. And, And God, we pray that we would know that you're with us every step of the way. God, that we are not alone in it. God, that you are the one who ultimately redeems us and brings us to yourself. Father, we, we can't do this alone, and we need you. And give us brothers and sisters in the faith to walk alongside us and to help us in our fight as well. So protect us, guide us, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.